All right, so this is an episode I did with Eddie Millis from the Shark Tank and uh, in California. And uh, he was a guy that I was familiar with from the Super Bowl years when I lived on Oahu. TJ was a guy who had uh, used his uh, fighters quite often in his early shows. And he had a, a number of really tough competitors. And uh, then I came across a short documentary called Fighting in Plain Sight, which was about Rafael Torrey. Um, Rafael Torrey was a guy who was kind of like a MMA media personality, an early one, who ended up committing a murder and uh, going to prison for the rest of his life. And uh, I thought Eddie was really good in that documentary. He was one of the guys that stood out. Uh, so I'm really glad that uh, you know he agreed to do the uh, interview. And I think uh, he's a great guy to listen to because he had uh, you know a lot of the. Uh, experience of the early years and kind of compared it to space exploration which i think was the interesting analogy so uh i think you guys will really enjoy this one if you're fans of the old school this is eddie millis from the shark tank check it out okay so this uh todd atkins and this is a show i've been waiting to do a long time with uh eddie millis you know and uh one of the reasons i was excited to do it is because i watched that uh fighting in plain sight kind of short documentary on youtube and i thought i thought you were really great in it as far as the interviews went so um what i like to do for people starting out is you know i think i have some hardcores to listen to this but also some new people so maybe you could introduce to somebody who maybe has never seen you before uh i guess i'm you know best known as a trainer um um i started a gym called the shark tank we started in 1997, 96, 96. And uh, originally I was working as a loss control person at uh, Super Kmart, you know? And it was funny because I remember I was working, I think it was nighttime and I went out on these two guys, they were stealing a lot. And um, what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to stop them Back then, we could detain them, you know, and then handcuff them. But I was working alone, and it was two guys. And I went out on them, and I asked one of the um, the guys that was working the front end, I think it was Ronnie or his brother Tommy, to come out and just make sure they backed me up. These guys are stealing a lot. It looks like they're going to do what's called a push-up, where they load the, the, the shopping cart out, push it out, the exit. So anyways, I went out there and stopped the guy and they got an altercation. I was able to take him down and, and you know, use some, some jujitsu skills. And that's where it all started really was because these guys were like, oh my God, what was that? And the next thing you know, two weeks later, we were breaking into the gym at JV College. And when I say breaking in, we'd have to use a coat hanger to get into the gym, to get into their wrestling, the defunct wrestling room. And we started practicing, you know, uh, what what we knew of to be MMA at the time, because it was so brand new. Um, and um, we just a group of guys that had love and passion for it. We're training and leg locking each other and taking each other down and kickboxing and all that. And then it grew. Um, I had a background in martial arts since I was eight. Uh, and then when I went in the army, I trained with uh, Edward Adams who was a, had a background in goju and all that and kickboxing. And so when I was in Germany, I got to be on this little team and we travel and fight. And most of it was like the, uh, I was, it, it was harder than point fighting and less than being in the ring kickboxing. 
And yeah, it was good. And that's, that, that's really, you know, I've been doing it since I was a little kid. I had a fascination for it by watching Kung Fu theater. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I used to take milk jugs and fill them with water and hang them in the backyard and make my own little you know, gym and practice. Uh, and then finally, when I joined a gym, my parents didn't even take me. I'd have to take the bus uptown Whittier to go to this gym. But it was weird because I always knew there had to be something more than your basic Thai crane or your karate. I knew it was lacking, it was missing something. And I was at a park one day and this guy came in. He used to walk around the town barefoot. He was a legend. His name was Arden. And he was a Kung Fu Sansu guy from Jimmy H. Wu who had started his Kung Fu Sansu studio in Whittier. And this dude was known. I mean, we're young kids. We're 15 and stuff. We're looking up to this dude. And he's, he's a legend because we're hearing how he beats people's asses. He's kind of like the Robin Hood of fighting, right? He's a good guy. And next thing you know, he starts training us at the park and stuff. And yeah, I just, I just kept, kept growing and growing. And like I said, went into the military. And then when I got out, I started doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu with uh, Pedro Cavallo. And then soon Alan Goyce came to town. You know the name Alan Goyce? I remember when he first came from Brazil. He's a great human being, by the way. He didn't speak much English. I would take him out to eat and maybe have a drink or two. And next thing you know, he's teaching me all these great things. And we started filming. We started inviting American wrestlers to the gym in up, uh, Upland, Montclair area. And we invited people to come and fight. And, and we videotape it. And I was amazed at what, these, what the Brazilians could do. And that's, that started my journey to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And then I sought out Eric Paulson and became a representative instructor under Eric Paulson and went to Japan and all these kind of crazy things. Trained with a seven-time world champion, Peter Cunningham, in kickboxing. I was always a guy that wanted to learn from the best, you know, and then become the best instructor I could be. Um, my Achilles heel was actually getting in the ring and fighting. I felt like there was so much pressure and things I didn't know. Like when we went to Hawaii, Super Brawl, you know, uh, we were surfing the day, we were, the day before we were fighting. We didn't know, you know, and you were exhausted getting out there on the surfboard. And coaches shouldn't coach fighters the day they're going to fight. And all these things I didn't know, but it was, uh, it was like space exploration. It was new to us. MMA was new, new techniques. I mean, you know, now you know pr pretty much not to heel hook somebody in a fight. If it's an MMA fight, if it's a submission tournament, it's different. But people can deal with that pain, you know, and they'll punch you in the face because you give up position when you go for a leg locks a lot of times. So, yeah, that's a little bit about kind of impromptu about me, you know. Yeah, I thought what made you guys kind of unique was you were doing a lot of the leg game, you know, back then when you weren't seeing it a lot other from maybe – Ken Shamrock, you know, the lion's den. Why were you guys so doing it so heavily? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, and we'll talk about the lion's den. You know, I, have, I got a lot of love for those guys. And I don't think people realize how tough those guys were. I mean, Jerry Bolander, Mikey Burnett, um, Vernon White, Pete, um, and, and Ken himself. I mean, you know, we'll talk about that. And we used to drive down there and train for two to three hours and drive back and then train again at night and it would just beat us up. But I was doing leg locks. I was fascinated with leg locks because I thought 
in my mind back then, why try to pass the guard? Why not attack the legs? So I started studying, you know, and I reached out to people that I thought could teach me um, and started picking it up and practicing. And, you know, a lot of that back then too was trying to say, you know, what is the best way to do a heel hook? Like if, you know, if the leg is straight, it can turn, right? But if you bend the leg so it can't turn and you do this with your legs and this and that, well, the guy can't roll, then you can, you know, you can get a better toe hold or, or uh, heel hook and create a better fulcrum. Um, Eric Paulson helped me a lot with that. Um, when I was over to uh, in Japan for K1 and L1 and Pancrase back in the day, I would, I would go to the Pancrase Dojo and I'd pick their brains, you know? I was a sponge. I just wanted to learn, you know? And uh, I had a fascination with leg locks and they were little, they weren't known. And we were winning a lot of fights by leg submissions back then. And King of the Cage, uh, Super Brawl, uh, Money Cox, Extreme Challenge, um, all of that. I think I met you at Super Bowl, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Now I want to ask you something because I like to ask guys who are from the California area to kind of give their thoughts on why they think California it, the sport was so big there because I think people don't realize how important California and Hawaii were, especially during the dark time of a UFC when it was taken off pay per view. Yeah, I gotta say first of all, you know, I got a great admiration for T.J. Thompson and Super Brawl and all the fighters in Hawaii. Like my best memories are Japan. I gotta, I gotta think this through a little bit, but right off the bat, it's gotta be Hawaii and Japan. You know, the fighters in Hawaii, you'd either, you'd either beat them or they'd beat you and they'd invite you to their house later for dinner and their drinks. And, and there was a mutual admiration and kindness. You know, I'd love to say hello to Ronald June and those guys uh, with Jesus as Lord. I, they, I have a, a, a fondness and a lasting a positive memory from so, um, and, and TJ worked his butt off to, to continue the fights. And it was, it was crazy because TJ would call, we'd be there. I remember he had a fight in El Paso, Super Brawl, and a bunch of people dropped out. So he's like, Eddie, I need a, I think it, I have to look in my book. It's either, because I don't want to be called, oh yeah, you're wrong. It's either six or eight fighters he needed. So I asked, you know, hey, you know, Danny Fowl, Phil Ortiz, Victor Hunsiger, all those guys. I said, are you guys ready to roll? And TJ's like, hey, rent a van. I'll pay for the van. I'll pay for this and that and get out there. And it was two days before the fight. We just popped in a van, drove out there and fought. It wasn't about the money. I think, I, think, I mean, a couple hundred dollars, you know, that's why I laugh. And I don't laugh in a bad way. But we, when we fought, we did it for, 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 for because we love the fight. And when I trained the guys and I coached them and used my own money a lot of times to do things, it's because I had a love for the sport. You know, there wasn't glory. You know, that I think SureDog was just starting to come up then and there were no holds barred websites and stuff. And if you've seen uh, that reporter that, you know, we're talk that we'll talk about later, that's in jail. Uh, you know, if you saw his name and he wrote nice stories on you, it made you feel good, you know, or if you got a, in the magazine or whatever um so in california you had ryan you had kaja ryan did neutral grounds which was this wrinkled mat outdoor people would go down there and fight if it rained the mat was wet it slipped but he he busted his ass and 
you know, that, that's when I, you know, the, the, the tap out guys were really, you know, they were in their truck or van putting this stuff out. It was so raw, it was so organic. Damon Morris, his name pops up. All those guys from back in the day, uh, 97, you know, 98. Larry Landis used to have tournaments, you know, great tournaments. And Larry's the kindest guy. And he did his best, Larry, Ryan, Akaja for Cage Combat. He probably had the best gig in Southern California monetary wise because he was in San Pedro, you know, and you have guys like Maverick and all them fighting and this place would be packed. It looked like right out of a movie set, you know, and you would show up oftentimes. So one time I, I fought, I think this is like one fight that I don't have documented as a win, which I'm trying to get Kasha to put it on my record, but it doesn't matter, is that I showed up at cage combat he says hey we had a guy drop out will you fight tonight i said well what are we talking about he's like well 250 i'm like how about 600 and he's like yeah and i went out fought and won and you know it was like literally 30 minutes and i realized that fuck for me at least that's the best way to fight i don't want to know about it i don't want to stress about it for five or six days because i'm my worst enemy you know and i'm i suppose we could talk about that too because i know fighters that in the gym or massacring pros, some of the best. But you put them in the ring in front of a bunch of people and they just lose it, something happens. Um, I believe that uh, that's one of the qualities I was missing was being able to turn it on once I was in the ring. K1 was, was good for me, but uh, it, it, it was, it, you know, fighting itself and coaching, doing both, it's it, hard to do both. Especially when you really love your fighters and training your fighters, you know? I'm curious, when did that switch flip for you where you're kind of like, okay, guys, we're going to be a fight team. We're going to go around. We're going to fight in all these shows. Is this something that you had to kind of build yeah, I, organically or did you kind of tell them off the bat that this was something you're going to do? I think I, I think I watched the UFC. And this is before – I built a relationship with the lion's den. I seen Ken walking out, you know, and I'm like, this is cool. So we started looking around the area, what was available. And I got contacted because, because the shark tank started getting a name as far as we're going to submission tournaments and we'll fight. And, and, you know, we got raided. I mean, we, we were fighting at this place called Safari bar in San Bernardino and the cops shut it down and came out guns drawn and everything in the middle of the fight Two of my guys, Brian Warren had already fought. Uh, Alberto um, had fought and then they came and raided the spot. So we were in it, you know, it was crazy. But we, we, we got contacted by Mexico and they said, you want to come down and fight? Now, people don't know about Mexico. This is a whole different breed. And, and you know, we're talking about fighters and I've got tapes, you know, from 98. We go down there, we have a meeting and they say, okay, I'm going to pay your fighters this, this and that. We match them up and the referee happens to be from that organization where all the fighters train. You know, we're going to Tijuana. We're fighting in a cockfighting arena. I actually took Terry Treblecock down there who owns King of the Cage. That's where he kind of got the whole idea to get started for King of the Cage. I took Terry and got him involved in the business, right? And we had guys that would bite. My guys would be on side mount. Those fighters down there would bite them. Um, I heard later on that some of those fighters down there were injecting like painkillers, like Nubane and stuff in their body. I mean, it was like the wild, wild west. And then the crowd would heat, you know, the, the, the coins, I think the centavos, Mexican centavos, they would heat them with a the lighter 
and then throw them at you. You know, like, shh. And there was one time when Tony Patera got bit. Tony Patera fought Vanderlei Silva. That was my first guy to fight in the UFC. And um, Tony got bit, and I jumped in the ring, and I started yelling. And next thing you know, the fans are going crazy, and I'm thinking to myself, there's about 16 of us. You know, and I had I had some friends that were uh, that were uh, that uh, you know were in special operations and stuff down that way in San Diego that came to watch us fight. Cool people, but I'm thinking, how the hell are we going to get out of Tijuana if this thing goes crazy? You know, um, but yeah, we 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 did it and we fought down there many times. The hardest thing was actually get collecting your money after. You know, very shady at, at back then, but. It, it, it was it was so raw and organic an experience and I tell the story to people I'm like you know imagine driving in a Tijuana showing up to the spot going to the cockfighting arena where they put a ring in there and having your guys fight for fifty dollars you know and some bad tacos <laughs> you know yeah looking back on it now would you do it again if it was today I mean obviously you wouldn't fight for fifty dollars but you want the truth. <clears throat> I think those are the type of things that like I could take to my grave, you know, like being part of something like that. Um, sure. We all want money, but like, and I'm sure we talked a little bit about trading and stuff like that. You know, you don't always win. You don't always make a lot of money. And these are the experiences in life that shape you and, and in many ways make you a better person. Um, so would I do it over again? Absolutely. Because when I tell these stories to people, you know, or I tell them like, I think the final time I went there, how I went to go collect money and, and, and they sent me to this, like literally like this warehouse and no one was there. And I think, oh shit, is this the end? I mean, it was crazy. Um, and, 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 and just, it was a wild, wild west back then. And you, you went out there and you fought and you did your best and you had to trust the techniques that you had learned from your instructors to be the techniques that work. And if you look at MMA today versus back then, I mean, a lot's changed, right? Uh, it, it, it's evolved to such a high level that certain moves you can't even do anymore because people are people would know about it. But uh, we ended up going to Mexico. I think we fought there five times, six times, Tijuana. And then I heard later on, they started cleaning it up a little bit better, got a little bit better and, and a little more honest, if you will. But um, really crazy. I mean, you're talking about the ring. You'd step in one section of the ring and it would dip down three inches. You, think, you know, the athletic commission wouldn't allow that. So it was interesting. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, back in that time, as you're saying, like the Wild West, even in the U.S., stuff was like that. But, you know, that made it special in a way that sanctioning kind of took away, you know, because sanctioning is so organized, they're in control of everything. Yeah. But back when it was the Wild West, there was kind of like a, an aura to the, to the whole scene because yeah. of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, something that I think back to right away, like, I think, like, I think, is it safe to say sometimes Ken Shamrock gets some slack? Or, I mean, uh, you know, he gets some... Uh, negative uh but but i witnessed how hard that guy trained i i witnessed his conditioning program i had to be part of that my guys had to be part of it i mean it was brutal and ken and i we 
Kit, we were down in San Diego one time and we befriended a Navy SEAL down there. We were out drinking and uh, he invited us over to Coronado one day and Ken got, I remember Ken getting up on the pull-up bar and just, just crushing it like, like 30 or something crazy. I mean, back then <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of access to technique and it wasn't refined like it is now. So it was all about heart, you know? Ken would take the guys, right? And his, his wife would, uh, we'd get in a van and he'd drop us off at this beginning of training at the bottom of this hill. And you'd have to sprint to the top of the hill. It was about half a mile. And then the van would pick you up at the top and bring you back down. So you did that four or five times. Then you got to the gym and you did 25 minutes of jump rope. Then you did drills, takedowns. And I remember going with Mikey Burnett and I thought that guy was a fucking machine robot, Mikey Burnett. Tough as nails, man. And I, I just seen it in all his guys. They were just physically and mentally tough. And to that, I give them so much credit because I don't think people really know because they were never there. You know what I mean? Um, and just the training, and then you would have to go with, if you were gonna fight a championship fight, you'd have to go with five guys for five minutes fresh MMA in the cage, in the, uh, cage you know? If you were doing a, a, a non-title fight, you'd go three guys fresh, and you'd have to be in there for 15 minutes. But, and then after you finish with this calisthenic program with 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, 50 push-ups, 50 squats, and then 50 sit-ups and 40, 40, 40, 30, 30, 30, all the way to 10, and then 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, all the way back up. That was something that I never did before. I never saw that doing karate or any of the other stuff I did, you know? Uh, not even when I was doing jujitsu at the time did we condition like that. So that was, uh, that was great. And, you know, Ken, for a lot of us, was our hero. You know, I got along with him really well. And... Uh, uh, he did a lot for us, I think, and, and, and getting my team tough, you know, and, and we, we would, uh, you know, we, you know, we were training with Eric Paulson too at that time. And it was a nice blend to work with those guys. Yeah. I think it was kind of, I know I was talking to Sean Wheelock about bare knuckle and he was saying a lot of the guys in that it's kind of similar scene where people are saying, look, they don't know how to train for this. So guys are asking each other in the back, what are you doing? Are you hitting sand? Are you punching the bag with no gloves on? Are you sparring with no gloves? You know, and I think there was a lot of that in MMA too back then because guys didn't know how to train or no one knew what necessarily what worked. Or so you were kind of learning on the fly while you're fighting. Yeah, and overtraining. You know, we're like the guinea pigs. You think about it. We're, we're the guinea pigs. No one's telling you about your resting heart rate you know, or training or VO2 max recovery, or you should be doing this or this or days off or doing, you know, any of that stuff. Now, I mean, I know a lot of guys, they're, you know, they're monitored by doctors, they're, they got it down to a science. Our monitoring was, you know, get out there and do that, you know, and do it. And uh, the only glory was getting your hand raised at the end. But I think there's still got to be glory in losing. Um, we put as a society, we put so much uh, emphasis on who won, but for guys just to get in the cage and fight and give it an attempt, you know, there's no helmets, you know, we're not playing football, there's no tennis rackets, 
you're getting out there with another person who wants to knock your head off. Um, and, and for that, there should be a lot of respect for anybody that stepped in the ring, you know? So. Now tell me about um, kind of what shows you feel like your team was getting established at, cause I know TJ relied on you a lot. Shark Tank will show up. They're going to fight, you know? T I got to say did, Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, we have, I have a Super Bowl <laughs> trophy over here, you know, for outstanding this and this, I got so many of the Super Bowl things and we have little belts from Mexico. Um, but I would say uh, definitely um, TJ uh, for sure. He was uh, very gracious to all our guys. I have no complaints. You know, people want to complain. They want to look back and say, Oh, I only got paid this. I only got paid that. I only got, well, if you do, you know, look, we all got to make money, um, but you can't only always be driven by money. You have to be driven by what's in your heart and you have to have a passion for it. If you have a passion for it, I think the money will come, you know, but I would say King of the Cage, Terry, uh, Terry to this day is one of my great friends. He was down the street. Uh, he's a big cigar guy too now, uh, but Terry's always been great to, 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 to me. I introduced him to the sport in the sense, and we started our first show together King of the Cage actually was four of us uh, that formed it. And, but Terry was a, was a workaholic. So he eventually took it and, you know, we, we, he, he pretty much said, Hey, I'm taking this on my own. And he did it. And uh, uh, Terry's always been great. TJ, uh, Monty Cox would call me when he would need something. You know, I remember he said, I need somebody to fight Dan Severn on Friday. And I think, yeah, it was Monty Cox show in Utah was one of those. And I go, okay, I asked Phil Ortiz, I feel you want to fight Dan, uh, Dan Severn Friday night. It was a Wednesday. He said, yeah, fuck it. let's go. We're just going to party after. You know, they, these guys were like, they were crazy. There was no, how much am I going to get paid? There was no, um, oh, I'm not ready. I haven't, been, I haven't had a proper eight-week camp. You know, it was, a, it was a wild, wild west. Let's just go and do it. So we get out there. He's like, you know. I know this guy can out wrestle me. What do I do? I said, just go out there, rush him, and try to, you know, overhand right him, fake a shot, overhand right him in the face, see what happens. You know? And, uh, you know, he didn't win, but we had a hell of a time. You know, we, we win or lose, for us, it was about the experience. And we had a great time doing it. And our win record, you know, was really good. I mean, we, we were winning. And um, we would take what we learned from the win and apply it and that's how you continue to grow as a martial artist i think or an mma fighter right right maybe tell me how you found some of the guys that you had because i remember you had all kinds of guys you have phil ortiz victor huntsacker brian warren tony covington john alessio john alessio show in canada invited him down i mean uh i got a funny story about um oh jesus why is his name out of my head from arizona um, like hundreds of times. Oh, damn it. Um, he fought in pride and everything. Has a gym in Arizona. Maverick, um, Ron Hernandez, Tom Hernandez, Darcy. I had a 17-year-old that, that he was a beast, Nathan Grego. We took him to Mexico to fight at 17 as a pro, and he was demolishing people. He'd walk around high school back then, you know, 99, 2000, like a god. Because they said, this guy's a cage fighter. You know, it wasn't called MMA back then. They were trying to find it. it was cage fighting or no holds barred or whatever. But a lot of these guys would seek out the gym. 
and, and say, hey, I want to come train. And it's crazy because they didn't have a background, a lot of them, in any, in any martial art. They just wanted to fight. And they wanted to see, they wanted to test him. Matt Helsius, uh, another one, you know, that I took down to Mexico. And he had a wrestling background, strong guy. Um, yeah, that little boxer kid. Uh, he fought Lincoln Tyler in Super Brawl. Oh, oh, that's Jose. Um, Lopez. Jose Lopez. Yeah. Jose was 135. And I remember coming in, he said he wanted to fight. And I'm like, okay, great. And I remember sparring with him. And he said 135 pounds. And at that time, I was about 205. He hit me in the liver. And I thought I saw the devil. I got to tell you, this kid for 135 probably had the hardest liver punch I've ever felt in my life. And yeah, that's the kid that you saw that phenomenal hands, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that was that was great, Jose Lopez and, and Super Bowl and those knockouts. But uh, phenomenal boxing. You know, he just could pick it up, pick it up. And he loved to dig into the liver and low kick and then mix it up. So. And then all the guys that, like I said, in Hawaii, you know, Super Bowl, Egan, NUA, Ensign, all those dudes were phenomenal. So tell me about the area where your gym was. Why do you think it attracted so many guys like this? What is it about the makeup of where you live? Oh, California that, or what? Or where you live in particular? Because I know Huntington was like, you know, such a hot spot and it had so many and people Rancho like Kubalunga, that. We have Shark Tank and we have Millennia, right? Right, right. So yeah, why, why, what is the makeup of that population over there that you think kind of <laughs> attracted? Some I don't know if it's so much just the population, but it's the fact that, uh, you know, Millennia is one of the first gyms too, that they've been around since the beginning and deserve a lot of credit. I mean, these were guys that we, we were the gym. We actually, I guess there, in my mind, there wasn't, but there was a, a friendly competition or a rivalry. I've never felt, I felt that, but um, we were two, at that time, we were the two go-to gyms back in those days of all, except for Huntington Beach in all Southern California. And maybe, maybe it's a couple small gyms, but at one time, I think I had like 30-some fighters. It was crazy, you know? Yeah, and that becomes difficult to keep up with all of that, you know, as people are asking you to do all these fights. You know, I will say this. Um, People don't understand how hard of a business it is. You got to deal with the fighters individually and their egos. And then if one fighter doesn't like another one, they may want to leave the gym. Or one fighter may be trying to talk to a girl at the gym that's married that you shouldn't do that, right? I don't like that type of fraternization. Not that I've ever been perfect, but um, you got to deal with the fighters and their egos. And then you've got to deal with the promoters. And, uh, it, it's, it, it was not easy, you know, it wasn't easy. There were a lot of times where, you know, look, you look nowadays and a fighter leaves a camp and goes to another camp and they say, oh, I went to this other camp because of this, or I went to this camp because of this, or I'm going to this camp because of the hottest camp. That's really hard for a trainer, you know? It's hard to take because uh, you feel like maybe they don't really understand how much you're giving, you know? Uh, many fighters don't pay to be at the gym. But you've got rent to pay. You've got insurance to pay. You got to clean the equipment. You got to have a home. You got to keep. You know. Um, I would say that you know to answer your question more direct is that I don't know. It just seems Southern California was a hotbed, and a lot of the Brazilians were coming over here. Where because I mean they leave Brazil. They don't want to go to you know North Dakota. They they want to go to where it's sunny and warm and the beaches. And so I was. Can you imagine getting Alan Goyce off the plane and being able to train with that guy? He's amazing. 
amazing, you know. And 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 like I said, Joe Morera and 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 uh, I remember Joe. You know, he says, "Okay, uh, you know, we we spar a little bit." And I started kickboxing, and next thing you know, I'm on the ground and you know tapping out, and he starts laughing. He was so kind about it. That was the other thing that made it. Uh, really made it easy, I think, for me at least, is that these, the Brazilians were so kind. You know, they tap you out, almost break your arm or leg or whatever, and then they laugh and say, hey, come on, my friend, and we go out and hang out and Brazilian barbecue eat or whatever like that. So they were very gracious, at least the ones, uh, the, the people that I got to deal with. And Eric Paulson, you can't talk about probably the most humblest guy, you know, I've met and and I would drive all the way out to Marina Del Rey to go train with him when he was at the Inosano Academy. And I would see people showing up late that lived five minutes away. And I drove an hour out there and kind of disrespect them and just walk in. Cause I'm, I'm a martial artist. I think you should bow, you call somebody sensei, coach, sir. You show the utmost respect. And I would see it and just deep down inside it would really upset me because they didn't understand who they had here. Cause you take, you know, there's a few coaches in the world that if you are on an Island alone and you had to learn from one person, you want to learn from that person. And one of those persons is Eric Paulson. I mean, he's an encyclopedia of everything, you know, but people want to judge him maybe on his fight career or if he lost the fight or whatever, which is so stupid because he's, 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 he's definitely easily in the top 10 trainers in the world you know let's talk about um you dealt with tap out a lot too as a sponsor you know they were like the the big ones you know coming up maybe talk about tap out a little bit oh i'd love to i mean i love charles and um god rest his soul man that that's his dad was my friend i mean i've got some good stories i mean i met charles in a parking lot of vons and I think I'd been training or whatever. And he, we just started talking. He's like, yeah, I started a clothing line called Tap Out. And he walks me over to his car and he's got this Tap Out shirt with like a hand-drawn dude getting armbarred. You know, the art wasn't great. I became friends with, uh, with, with Charles and he started sponsoring us. And then I met Dan and Dan, Dan and I are still friends to this day. And I met Charles's father. I mean, Charles's father got along really cool. Charles's dad liked to ride motorcycles and I had a Harley. And, you know, Charles's energy, I don't want to get choked up. I'm, I feel like I'm a little bit more sensitive than I normally am because I lost my, one of my pups a couple months ago. But Charles's energy was infectious. And uh, if we needed shirts, clothing, whatever, he was there. I remember popping up in the gym. You know, I call him hot chocolate. He called me marshmallow. You know, cause, you know what I mean? And I got the hot chocolate. He goes, I got the marsh. He'd just pop in the gym out of the blue. I'm in the middle of training and he would pop in and he'd start singing and everybody would look at him. He'd throw everybody's shirts and everything. I mean, that guy, that guy was, I don't want to use him in the past tense because he still lives in, 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 in my heart, you know, in, in a lot of people's heart. Just a, an amazing person, you know, and, uh, uh, I still have a tap out shirt that he gave me that I never wore and it's on a hanger in my closet. I'll never wear it, but I keep it there. And when I look at it, I think about him and, and respect, you know? 
Um, you know, he always thought people could do more. You know, he always saw, thought you could do more than you're doing. Because I remember, like, Sherdog told me, he, Charles was asking him, hey, what do you want to do with your website? And he said, well, my goal is to be like the ESPN of MMA. And he was like, why? What, can't you be bigger than that? You know, so he always thought that way. And I met him. Yeah, the same thing, you know, like of all the people I met in the industry, he was someone that I always remembered because he was really kind, but he really paid attention to you when he talked to you. You know, it seemed like it was very important to him. And that's because Most he was people. genuine. You can't fake that. Yeah. You know, you, you can't fake that. Um my instructor, Peter Cunningham in kickboxing, the seven-time world champion, I drive out there to, uh, from, from Rancho all the way to, uh, to uh, uh, House of Champions uh, three times a week. And um, same thing, to train with that guy and, then, and how genuine he was. Boss Rutten. I drive to Thousand Oaks to go train with Boss Rutten. And at that time, he had Kimbo up there. And Kimbo was a wonderful human being, at least to me. First time I met him, he was standing there holding the door open when he got out of the car. I mean, I mean, he hit like a son of a bitch, but uh, just great people. Boss Root was always really great to me. Go car, you know, um, our community in Southern California. I used to do, you know, you know what's funny? Go car is really good at leg locks and submission. So I would see him at like a house of champions or some of these small fights. I mean, I can't even. You probably have it documented better than I, but I, I don't I don't even have a count on how many fights my team's been in. I, I was it's in the hundreds. If you think of all the guys and all the small shows, but I would see Gokar at a show and I say, Hey Gokar, you know that I heard you did this leg lock, you know, like an inverted this and that. And he's like he was so happy to take me to the side and take me to the mat, show it to me. So I would pick his brain two or three times. You know, maybe when I would see him and I'd get two or three leg locks out of it, and I'd say, okay, I got to memorize this. Then I see him again and he'd teach me a couple. Uh, so he was also a uh, wonderful go car. Um, yeah, and I'm hoping. And then I trained with Shuki Ron, who was originally trained at Majero Gym. He's in Israel, he's back in Israel now, but he had a Majero Gym in LA, and I was training with him before I fought K1. And then, you know, I, I, I started moving. Uh, I met Scott Coker and you know Scott's still a great friend of mine and he gave me a chance I walked up to him literally in the arena at K1 and I said hey I have the shark tank and we're an MMA team and he kind of looked at me and like who are you you know <laughs> I mean if Scott was there he'd say that but I told him I said hey I got some guys and myself I'd like to fight on K1 and he gave me the opportunity and then finally you know my I guess one of my claim to fame was taking a Samoan named Mighty Mo who at that time was pretty much tossing, from what I understand, working, you know, at the various farms or whatever and doing different different bodyguarding and everything and training him and winning the K-1 Grand Prix in the U.S. He won three fights that night. And that's probably, you know, as a coach, one of my, one of my greatest uh, accomplishments because fighting three fights against, you know, champions all over the world isn't easy, but we had a great game plan. And at that time, I was getting way, as a coach, more seasoned. If a fighter fights one fight and he's got another one, you can't have him sitting down or laying down because he'll stiffen up. So I knew that. And I, had I not had experience before in this with Super Bowl in the tournaments, I would never know. So we would ice him, get him moving around, ice him, keep him moving, keep him fresh, and he went out and won. I think he went off at 13 for the odds I had him at. 
And I don't think I'm, I don't know if you're supposed to bet or not, but anyway, somebody associated with me bet a thousand on them and won 13,000, so that was cool. And then I started, I got a contract with K1 to be a trainer and scout out Americans. And next, you know, I started training ex-WWE guys to go fight in Japan. And that was crazy. You know, Japan was paying me well. And, you know, I, I had chemo fight Bob Sapp, as you saw that fight, which was very controversial. Right? Because they gave Bob a standing, like, 12 count. But, uh, chemo had hit him really hard. And, and after the fight, Dana came up to me. Dana White was there. We talked a little bit. I'm like, this is BS. You know, I'm going I'm to protest. So then Daisuke from K1 had came up to me. I said, Daisuke, this, this is bullshit, this loss. I'm going to protest this. And he goes, Eddie, isn't protesting this kind of like Mickey Mouse suing Disneyland? I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. I guess I'm not protesting it. Because, you know, I was, I was working for K1 too. Uh, it's not that I didn't want to do the right thing, but I knew that really, where's it going to go? In the long run, my association with K1 and being able to get people over to their fight, get to Japan, experience Japan on their dime, be treated like a, you know, star or whatever, which was important to some of these guys. So I didn't want to burn that bridge. Um, and then, you know, I had guys like Sean O'Hare from WWE, Tom Howard, um, Sylvester Turquay, who arguably should be one of the greatest heavyweights that ever lived. Boss Rudin will tell you that, the NCAA champion MMA guy. But he took a couple fights and he, and, 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 and that, and he decided to stand up and fight. Matt uses you know, wrestling skills. Uh, but he, Sylvester Turquay, to this day, for I've never met a guy like that or seen a guy like that. And this guy, he's God-fearing Christian, didn't drink, didn't smoke, showed up on time, used to toss everybody around. He used to call me Hedgehog, like Sonic. He just grabbed me and, and ragdolled me. I mean, this guy, you know, you know who Sylvester is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember he kind of had like the ponytail and the beard. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Boss Rudin, I think, said, I'm trying to get the quote right. He said, this guy really, you know, trained right and did the right things. He, he destroyed everybody. He, this, his hands were like a bear paw. And he just grabbed you. And, and he would train. It was yes, sir, no, sir. You know, a lot of the other WWE guys, they were like, they get on the treadmill for 10 minutes, go in the ring and shadow box. And I'm not going to throw anybody on the bus in the podcast, but there were a lot of guys that, that, that pretended to train and didn't train, you know. And having come from training with the Lions Den for so many years and those guys and seeing how hard they trained, it, it was hard to respect some of the guys that were coming in or being sent to me that wanted to train because they wanted no part of getting hit, you know. They wanted no part of it. But could you not get Turkey to change what he was doing? Uh, Turkey had another coach that he befriended. That a lot of times coaches get in people's heads. And so I think he fought Gary Goodrich in K1. And he decided to try to stand up with Gary and Gary caught him. And that was it. All he had to do was shoot a double, take Gary down. The fight was over, you know? And I love Gary. I trained Gary too for a while. Gary came down from Canada, you know? Um, but just, you know, but I mean, that's a great question. Very strong question. I mean, how many people, there's a, there's a saying, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So you have to be ready to listen and take the criticism and follow a game plan. 
the best people in the world, the best, the special operations community, they're the best because they come up with a plan. They rehearse that plan over and over and over and over and over and over. And then they have redundancy, you know, uh, in case something goes wrong and they rehearse that over and over and over. And that's why they're successful at what they do and they're the best at what they do. Um, let alone they have great hearts and, and the work ethic. But, uh, and then again, that's not to take anything away from Sylvester because his work ethic was second to none. But I think that maybe in that fight, uh, maybe the, the train, this is my opinion that the trainer maybe got in his, this other trainer got in his head or something. Now, when did you kind of start to transition out of it? I mean, are you still, you're not involved to the same level you were before, right? I, I trained, I trained, I got asked to come to a gym locally and teach. I did. I took their guy and built him into the champ of King of the Cage. He won the King of the Cage championship. Um, but I started transitioning out of MMA one December when, like seven or eight students were coming in saying, oh, I don't have the money for this month. Oh, hey, can I get a free month? And then I look on their Facebook and they were in Vegas partying. I got tired of having to have a gym and all, all, the, all the gym owners listening to this and instructors, they'll understand, you know, we don't do it for the money. You know, it's not about the money, it's about the love. And I just got tired of trying to ask people for their money and you know, or one person all of a sudden wants to train with you and then they find out that uh, New Mexico, the guy in New Mexico is, you know, winning everything and they don't want to go out to New Mexico. Nothing gets them. They're, they're a phenomenal team and coaches over there. But that's it, you know. And I understand because I play guitar, right? There's a thousand guitar coaches. You've got to find the one that works for you. Um, but that was the hard thing. I think a lot of times too many people, too many martial art or fighters or MMA guys or whatever, however you want to call it, are too quick to jump ship to go to the next team or this team or whoever's coolest. And, and uh, that was, I, I was over it, you know? And um, I, I also, I also didn't like a lot of the maliciousness when I would read when I would go online and see a lot of stuff about the fighters, you know, anyone, uh, whoever it may be, you know, or this person's this, or Bob Sapp's this, or this person's that, but they don't know their story. You know, they, they, some of these guys have no idea the time and effort these guys actually put in to, to try to be out there and try to be. Now, look, you have to have a strong character to be in any sport. Uh, to be continue to be successful, you know. There, I think I read a book by Stephen Maxwell and Charles Maxwell that says there's five A's of a men's downfall: adultery, desperate feelings of aloneness, arrogance, uh, aggressive adventure seeking, and uh, there's another one. But if you don't have strong character and you're out doing drugs, or you're drinking and driving, or you're getting in fights, or you're cheating on your woman, or any of that stuff, it's gonna it's gonna affect your career. You know, and I seen it all too. I seen it all. I see, I, you know, again, I don't want to name guys, but I know guys that were just absolute terrors and threw their whole career away because they couldn't control their demons. Me, I left MMA with the tools of, well, if you're an MMA and you went through the hard, hardest training all over, then you can take that, take that work ethic, and apply it to a business, whatever it may be. Outwork everybody, 
do the best job you can. Um, wake up every morning and ask yourself two questions. Do you care or are you careless? That's a thing. Wake up. Am I, do I care about this or am I going to be careless? And then I apply that philosophy to myself and life's been good. You know, several businesses. And as you know, we talked earlier, uh, trade stocks, day trade stocks as well. And, um, that's it. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, I know we've talked offline about this, but if you're educating somebody, like even me, I was involved with annuities. I know that they're invested in different things, but I don't really know nothing about day trading. I've met right. some guys who did that. When I was right. in Hawaii, I used to work at a building and some of the guys <clears throat> that lived there were day traders. But uh, yeah, maybe break it. I, know, I don't know if this could be long-winded, but maybe in a way that oh, something I, I, simple I, that I could understand. Well, I would first say this is like, uh, you know, there's a lot of times nowadays it's, I get people that are messaging me because sometimes I'll post my trades and they're like, Oh yeah. Did you hear about this? I'm getting in this or I'm getting in Bitcoin. And, and there's so many, there's so much hype right now. People think they're just going to throw their money in and be instant millionaires. It's kind of like I'm dumbfounded a lot because you have to have preparation. Uh, my friend, Alex, um, Owns a company called Protein Factory. You know, they do all the custom proteins and everything. And Alex taught me that he's a day trader too. And he taught me we'd be on the phone from 5:30 in the morning till one o'clock in the afternoon, daily trading. And I I remember losing twenty-two thousand dollars in a week. You know, so you think, oh, I'm just gonna get in there and trade and it's gonna be great. It's not. So what I would say to anybody is you have to do your homework like a fight. You have to be prepared. You have to be the best, uh, I'm out of lack of words for a second, I only have one pair or two. Um, you have to be prepared as much as possible. And then you start little. And then you you know, you know gotta learn chart signals, and market cap float, and all this kind of crazy talk, jargon. And then you start trading. Um, and you have to have balls. I mean, my friend sent me a lantern. So, because he used to say that uh, the cave you the cave you fear holds a treasure you seek. I'm telling you, I, I I was sitting one time on one stock, and my portfolio was down like fifty thousand dollars, and I was like, and you the, your first instinct might be sell 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 if you were not trained properly or you you know you. You know, I, I can only take the knowledge that I can read and, 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 and take in. Uh, and by no means am I a guru or anything, but you have to you have to suck it up and then you hold. And sure enough, I mean, you know, it paid off. You know, I was I was heavy in Tesla and some other stocks and, and that went really well. And, um, today was a bit crazy, though. <laughs> is it something where most guys have this portfolio? Maybe this is something they're going to use for they aren't pulling money out of it or are they? No, no. So when you day trade, you like, let's say you have a hundred K in the bank, right. Or in your trading account. So sometimes they'll also give you margin on top of that. So you'll have a hundred thousand, but you're able to trade like 180,000 margin. And so you, you know, you get your hundred thousand in there and you say, Oh, look at this. Uh, I think I want to buy some Tesla. It's $300 a share. I want to buy a thousand shares, you know? So you, you know, I mean, you wouldn't have the money for that, but let's say you buy a hundred shares. And so you buy hundred shares of Tesla at $300 and you spent a hundred dollars. I mean, you bought a hundred shares at $300 and you know, $30,000 and then Tesla goes up to 900. Well, you know, um, 
But the biggest thing that you can't, ultimately you can't be is greedy. You cannot be greedy. You better walk away with something than nothing. You look at the Bitcoin thing, who knows where it's gonna go. I have my ideas but I think it, it went down 50% from 60-something. I think it's 37, 36 right now, Trey. Didn't China just say, oh, well, we're not going to allow anyone to use this? And that just basically no. thank it, right? Right. And then when you, when, you really, when you really don't know, I mean, that's why I like stocks. But still, I don't know. I mean, the big corporations, you know, the, the push-heavy shorting on one stock. Or, you know, I'm, I'm like, I, I'll short if I have to, but I'm mainly a bull. I don't know why, because the right, right way to day trade is to trade the signals. If it looks like, you know, you know, you got a short and the stock looks like you short it, you short it. If you, you want to go long and then you take a long position or you want to scalp it or, 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 you know, you, 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 you know, it just depends. I, I, uh, I, my, like, like I talk about Mighty Moby and my claim to fame and I'm, you know, my day trading was with Rocket when Rocket IPO'd. That was like one of my biggest days. I did like $14,000 and, 40 minutes <laughs> what is the end game though does like guys have it and say okay i'm gonna have this for 20 years and whatever i have in 20 years that's what i'm gonna walk away with or is that you gotta have is that how it works so my buddy steve rusich i don't know if you know he's uh from triple count fight management he owns a kia dealership and um we'd exchange fighters and stuff he's a good friend of mine he lives across the street but he said he's he did very well in trading and uh really well and uh, he says, win goals, loss limits. You know, you have to have your, 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 your uh, goals and you, you have to get to a point, if you're gonna lose this much, then you're out. I know a lot of people lost a lot of money because they'll watch one or two YouTube videos and think that they can, they can go against these Wall Street gurus. Kind of like fighting, right? Right. You can't take a guy off the street, train four days, and expect him to go beat a John Jones. It never happened. So you have to, you have, anything you have to do, you have to prepare yourself. And um, I would say like, if you want to trade, uh, there's tons of resources online, study, get an account and they give you play money. Take your play money and play with it for 60 days. See what you can do with it. You know, now a lot of people say, well, it's play money. So I'm going to get really crazy, but, but try to do it like genuine, you know, buy a stock, you know, learn how to watch the signals, the one minute, the three minute, the five minute, the 10 minute, and so on. Decide what, 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 uh, what, how you want to set up your chart and all that stuff, you know. And learn about Ichimoku clouds if you want and all these awesome oscillators, RSI. It's, it's just a lot of jargon, but it's all out there on, on YouTube. But what I mean is like you have this account, right? And it has money in it. Yeah. And are most people like, okay, I'm going to do this for 20 years, 30 years or... I'm, I'm just going to do this until I reach 500,000, you know, whatever. Do they have some sort of I have path a goal. Or, or not? Yes, we have a goal. I have a goal. And once I get that goal, I'll, I'll trim my position. So, so once, once I think that, you know, I, I've got to where I need to go, I'll take the initial money that I started with. I'll put that back in the bank. I'll take a little bit out. So maybe I can take Come here, Leo. My little Leo to go to Europe. Come here. So you Here's do take dog. you do take Come some out. Dog, Leo. Say hi. Yeah. Um, and, so you and, do take some out occasionally. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Not right now. I haven't. 
because I'm in some positions that I think are going to be really good down the road. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, look, let's be honest, if you're paying attention to everything happening, unemployment, housing, all of unemployment's about to stop, country's about to open up, people have to go back to work. What about everybody that has these mortgages that they're behind a year and then they're going to have to pay that? And I'm, I'm a believer, again, this is just my opinion, that the market's going to, it's going to crash soon. It's going to go down. Yeah, that's what I talk to every day. I talk to people that are on forbearance. Yeah. They haven't paid for a year or 18 months now, you know, right. cause they changed the 18 months and yeah. yeah. I mean, <clears throat> so, I mean, again, you know, people, people call me and ask me, Oh, what should I buy? Whatever. I don't even, I don't even know how to, I don't know what to tell them anymore. Cause I don't want to give advice because if it goes wrong, you're the anti-hero. It goes right. You're the hero. So I say, you know, these, this is what I'm playing. You make your choice. You do your own research and, and go from there. Because I listened to one guy one time, and I don't even know why I listened to him, and I lost 10K in a week on his stock, and I never would trade that stock, ever. And I just, I, I listened to him, and that, that, again, is learning. It's like, shit, you got left hook. <laughs> you know, you got left hook, you gotta keep right hand up. You learn from those type of mistakes. But when it's in your pocketbook, it's, it's huge. So tell me about this AMC thing, you know, what this is in the news. Can you kind of explain that in a well, so, sim simple know, way? Well, in a simple way, these Reddit groups are formed and, and they talk about a stock and, and they, they hype it up. And, you know, these uh, GameStop, remember what happened to GameStop, AMC, and there's one more, I haven't mentioned this one yet. Um, and they hype it up and blow it up. And, and you see like AMC yesterday, I think, or the day before, whatever I posted was up $34. And I ended up selling at 67. I think it's at 51 right now. And a friend of mine reached out to me and said, oh, um, I really think that, and she does, she's a cop. She says, I really think that AMC is going to go to two or $300. And I was like, oof. So as long as you have those out there that are just, yeah, it closed at 47.50 AMC. So I sold it at 67, $20 more, right? So if it continues to go down, you're screwed. I mean, why have hope, make some money? But, um, but that's what they do, these Reddit groups, you know, and these Discord groups. And then they, uh, they, they, they tell everybody, buy, 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 and the stock goes boom, 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 boom. You know, and that's, that's what's happening. I think uh, yesterday, AMC had like 540 million or the volume was crazy, something crazy. Um, and these so Wall remember, Street guys don't like that because they're manipulating. Well, they're the manipulating it, they're shorting it. Yeah. So when all these guys are buying it, they're squeezing the shorts. So the shorts are forced to sell, right? And then the stock shoots up. Um, but make no mistake, um, you know, Clint Eastwood, I think it was in the enforcer. He says a man's got to know his limitations. I know I'm up against guys in wall street that are far superior to I am, you know? So I'm calculated when I trade and, um, I had a great teacher, like I said, Alex Rogers. Um, and we still, we still, we still talk today about his system, you know, or the things he's working on. Um, but I, I just say like anything, anything that you do, 
um, learn first. Just don't jump in and don't believe hype and don't believe friends because they're posting, I'm on Bitcoin. You know, look at where are all the Bitcoin posts now. Everybody on Facebook was, was posting Bitcoin and they're not talking. See a lot of MMA characters talking about Bitcoin. It seemed like all the rage, you know? How funny is that? I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if, you know, um, I don't know. I think people get caught in the hype, you know? Um, and if you're, you know, if you're doing something, you're an expert, something, maybe focus on that. You know, I read a book called Seasons of a Man's Life, and I know that, man, we're going to go through several career changes. You know, I was in the Army. I came out of the Army. I did MMA for a long time. Now I'm an entrepreneur. I have several businesses that I trade. And who knows what the future holds for me. But whatever I do, uh, even I love tacos, you know. Uh, Todd, if I open it, I love tacos. But if I open a taco stand, it's going to be the cleanest. It's going to have the best customer service. It's going to have the best tacos and a great logo and atmosphere and i'm going to cover all the bases and if you have that type of uh work ethic then i really believe you'll be successful I, i'm on a, a board of directors too for a leadership conference now and i help mainly minorities learn how to establish small business it's called the circle of change it's my volunteer thing you know so i, I pre-covid i was traveling around and i would speak at different colleges i think the last one i was at uh I was in New York and Queens speaking and it's great. So, so for me, uh, I love to be able to give back and help people, but the common denominator, I think is work ethic, you know, and I'll outwork you. That's what I tell everybody. You know, I'm an alien. I got that. I got that from my buddy, Matt. Um, he used to be in WWE, Luther Reigns, you know, Matt, we see I'll outwork anybody. I'm an alien. And he is, man. He's successful. He's building this crazy house on acres in Arizona. And he's out of WWE, but he started another business, entrepreneur, for like 10 years. And the dude is just works his ass off. So I think if you have work ethic, um, you'd be successful. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that documentary I saw you on. Um, why were you approached by it? Um, I know Ed Doty did it. Did you yeah. know him or did he? Oh, I knew Raphael Torrey very well. Yeah. No, I mean, Ed Doty. Did he oh, I knew Ed you Doty. out? Ed, uh, Ed did a documentary on us on the early days of MMA called Life in a Cage. Have you seen it? I haven't, but I'll have to look. You haven't? Sure. No, <laughs> not that one. I've seen like, a lot you, of stuff. but You have to watch. Ed Doty did a fantastic job. on it. That's, that's the Shark Tank. That's us driving down to the Lion's Den, training at the Lion's Den. You got Shamrock in there, Vernon White. You got Jay Martinez. I, I forgot to mention Jay. I mean, Jay was a phenomenal. I used to call him Jekyll and Hyde because nicest guy in the gym. And then you get out in the ring and he was a terror. Um, but um, but um, yeah, to, to answer your question, um, sorry, those were my neighbors. Um, I lost my train of thought. No, I just asked, why did he approach you for that problem? Oh, yeah. So Raphael was living in that vicinity and was a reporter and he fought in King of the Cage and the King of the Cage fight was, as you know, mysterious at best. And Raphael, um, I knew him well. And he, I remember coming to my gym one time and asking if he could borrow some of my mats because he was opening his gym. And then I heard the story about, you know, allegedly 
you know the story about the trophy and getting dropped off in the wilderness and then coming back yeah. you know, for Kumite. Um, very likable guy. You know, he's obviously in jail now for murder. I don't want to throw him under the bus because personally he never did anything wrong to me. Um, I got asked to do the documentary by Ed because I knew him. I watched him train. I'm actually not happy on about a couple of things I said in the documentary. I think one was a documentary shot seven, eight, nine years ago. Hmm. Um, and he was doing some technique that was questionable. And I think at one, I was like, oh, wow. I, I don't know if I'd approach it like that anymore. You know, I, I don't want to berate anybody or put anybody down, but I will say, um, there was something about the guy that was different and you know he ended up uh, getting uh, charged with murder you know he had uh, he was going out with this girl and it was right down the street they found the guy's body in the parking lot of um, albert i think it's albert sims one of those and so homicide came by to my place and how do you know this guy and what do you know mm. it was crazy it was crazy because he was one of us in the sense he was a reporter that would really shine light on you and show up and he had all his chains on and stuff and he was a good guy and charming yeah. um why he did what he did and why people do what they do for money and kill somebody for his insurance money I, I i can't grasp it you know it's cowardly to me you know cowardly to take somebody else's life for any other reason you want to you want to make money go out there and fucking work you know stop looking for a handout that's it. So, yeah. So I did the documentary, and um, it was it was Ed's a great guy, so, the director. I mean, when you were doing that, was that something you were kind of because you knew him? Were you maybe hesitant to do it first, or? Yeah, I was hesitant, and that was an odd time in my life too when I did that documentary. I don't know if what was going on, but I was I was looking at the tape, and I I don't know if I had. I mean, every day I'm learning, right? And growing, trying to become a better person. I tell people, if you're going to be Batman physically, you have to be Batman mentally too. And you should always not just work on your physical physicality, but you should work on your brain and become a better person and a better human being. God knows I made millions of mistakes. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I chose to do it. If I was asked to do it over again, I might say a couple words, but I don't know. I, 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 it's a very, it's very sad for me because again, the guy was great to us. He was a reporter to go to. He was king of the cage ringside every time, you know, and you see him there and, and he was a cool cat. And, um, you know, when somebody does something like that, that, you know, and you consider a friend, uh, or an acquaintance, it's, it's a form of betrayal, too. Like, dude, you went and murdered somebody, you know? You had a plot to murder somebody, the wife, and to get their money. So it's beyond me. That whole, that whole thing was crazy, you know? But I've I, I seen a lot of crazy stuff from that guy, you know? And the stories I heard, you know, the stories he would tell me, I was like, all right, right on, you know? Great, you know? They were, they were, they were, they were quite the tale, but <laughs> what do you do? Right. I mean, the community was so small back then that you had kind of different characters that everybody knew. Even at my work, some people have seen some of this podcasting I've been doing. They're like, how do you talk to these people all around the world? I'm like, 
Well, the community is really actually smaller than you might think. Right. You know, and then as you're doing this stuff, you talk to more people and that's just all yeah. there is to it. And I think that's how it was with Raphael. He was one of the community. He was, yeah. and he's a great, he was a great reporter. Um, for me, you know, like I was, I told you I was hesitant originally doing the podcast because for me, I'm like, I care about my dogs, you know, this guy and, and my friends and family and, you know, good people in the sport. But um, in a lot of ways, I feel bad for a lot of people in the sport that uh, were, were the groundbreakers and paved the way and are financially broke um, or don't have a means to make money. Well, you know, I guess, like I said, I think it's always up to you. Uh, you need to make money, but those that might have a little bit of brain damage or this or this or that, and, or just acknowledgement, you know, um, I was, I was, I was, I was, three years ago, I was a cosmopolitan in Vegas and I was on the roulette table and I had quite a bit of money on the table. I think like seven grand. And uh, there was a pretty famous UFC fighter that came up. And he was walking with his entourage. He was very arrogant, very disrespectful to everybody there. He didn't know who I was. I never said anything. I just kind of chuckled um, because I think, you know, a lot of the UFC guys, they don't know who paved the way. You know what I mean? And I, I wasn't, I didn't want to say anything in the matter to me, but I, I, I just looked at his attitude and, and he was boisterous and all that. And, I don't remember guys back in the day that I trained with that, I, that acted like that. I really don't. And you know what's crazy? The K1 guys, we'd go to K1. I remember Stefan Lecco fought. Who did he fight? Did he fight Peter Arce? He fought somebody in K1, right? I think this was in Vegas. And we're all out drinking, partying after. The camaraderie was there. Um, the guys were, at least in my opinion, I'm not saying it's – like across the board like that today but guys were really humble and and gracious and yeah so it's just funny to me being at the table playing you know roulette and he the guy came up and he was just really rude to the dealer cocky to everybody that didn't make me miss the sport do you know what i mean as you're watching it get bigger though well, you know, it kind of you brought Mikey Burnett up. You know, Mikey lives in my area. He oh, lives he? in Tulsa. Yeah, he lives in Tulsa. Okay. I live about you know twenty minutes from Tulsa. So I've I've talked to Mikey many times. I was there. He got shot recently. Did you ever hear about that? Wait a minute. Mikey what was like shot five times. He uh, this was maybe I want to say twenty nineteen. He was with his uh, son. They were at a gym, 10 gym, you know, one of those chain gyms. And this was on a 31st and Garnett area of Tulsa. Not a good place to be at nighttime. And uh, this guy approached him, this kid, maybe 17, Jesus. 17, 18. And he asked to use his phone. And Mikey said, um, I'll dial the number then, you know. And the kid just put his gun to his head and said, you're going to give me your phone, you know. And he had someone else with him. So there were two of them. Wow. And uh, Mikey basically, you know, told him to, you know, I'm not going to give you my phone and, yeah. you know, on certain words. And he tried to smack it out of his hand, the gun. Wow. I, and the guy just started unloading on him. He shot him five times. And his son, 
came around the truck. They had a vehicle they were at and jumped on the guy and the guy shot him in the leg. You know, the guy put the gun to his leg cause he got him on his back, you know? Yeah. And he shot him in the leg. So some falls off, oh, you know, I'm hit. So yeah, Mikey, huh? His son is an outstanding grappler. Um, his his name is uh freddie okay and i think he just graduated high school maybe one or two years ago yeah big huge red afro okay like (laughs) but outstanding grappler really good grappler and uh yeah mikey survived you know and i i went to the hospital to see him and he had staples all over his stomach and he had police in there with him you know they caught the kids that shot him within like an hour you know that because it happened like at 7.30, 8.30. There were people all around, you know. So I didn't even know this story. Yeah, I mean, somehow he survived. You know, and on the news, one of the police officers, I think it was the, you know, guy I've been around a long time, he said, if this guy's not the toughest Tulsa person in Tulsa, he's one of them. Oh, you know? I didn't even know the story, and I was talking about him earlier, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, that's horrible that happened to him. I'm so happy that he survived, you know. Um, uh, it's just crazy. But when you talk about MMA, he won't even talk about it. So kind of, he kind of reminds me of what you're saying. Mikey's like, he wants nothing to do with talking about it. I, I think, I think. Even in just casual conversation, not I even podcast. You I know? don't tell anybody I was involved in MMA. I go out or whatever, and I'm at a bar, some girls are coming out, whatever. I don't talk about that. I don't even talk. I don't even say I'm a business owner. I care. I care. I don't want us. I'm not even joking. And it's kind of a joke. joke I'll say, you know, I, I work at McDonald's or I do this, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people that don't want to talk about it, feel betrayed by the sport. You know, um, my take on it is I've met some wonderful people all along, all the way from Ken Shamrock, Frank Shamrock, to the Lion's Den guys, to the guys from Hawaii, um, to the guys in Japan and New Zealand. I have an uh, instructor that I trained for a long time and he's very successful named Alan Orr in New Zealand. Uh, he's originally from England and he's a wonderful human being. So I've, I've been able to create some very strong lasting relationships with some really good people. Um, what I was getting to earlier was I do feel bad for a lot of the, uh, the uh, gatekeepers uh, and the old guard because I don't think they get the recognition they deserve. But it seems like that in everything, yeah? Unless you're maybe memorialized in a movie like Gone with the Wind or something, you know? How many people know who Clark Gable is or yeah, I think it's even true of the UFC. I mean, Frank Shamrock's not in the Hall of Fame. John Peretti's not in the Hall of Fame. These guys that were hugely influential in the UFC yeah. in one way or another, they're not even involved with the UFC. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we start this podcast and you think how long it could last. I mean, we just touched the tip. We're not even, what about all the work Fabiano Eha did? All of these guys in Southern California to make it happen. Darren Dodson, Clint Dahl who used to do it, Clint Dahl is a, a good buddy of mine, he used to do his shows down there in, um, in um, you know, Huntington Beach. It's crazy. 
it, it was, it was, and, and there were shows all the time. That's really neat, you know. Shannon, Shannon Rich was the one I was thinking about earlier that came out to my gym for a couple of days, and then, yeah. But anyway. Yeah, so as we're kind of winding down this interview, I always like to ask people, um, maybe there's something you'd want to leave someone listening to this, maybe something that you felt that was important that you haven't talked about or maybe a message you wanted to. Um, I, I, I would say that um, I, I guess if I was speaking to people that are doing MMA currently and fighting, is that you would need to continue to evolve because your career is only going to last for a long, so long. And, you know, put your money away and do things wisely. Um, have, you know, have empathy, be, be, be generous, be, um, be uh, honest, you know, have solid character, uh, be a work in progress, continue to grow. If you're, uh, and I, I touched on it earlier, if you're going to spend so much time physically being, you know, a uh, specimen, you have to do the same thing here. And if you're not right there, go out and get the proper help, you know, read books, do whatever, um, become Batman physically and become Batman mentally. That's really, that's what I try to, to, to mentor a lot of the, uh, uh, the people that I mentor that are starting small businesses or youth coming out of college and that have these dreams and goals, you know, um, growing up, a lot of people don't have fathers or mothers that are going to tell them what they need to do properly. And they don't have the proper mentorship, right? Uh, that's something I, I really think is lacking. Uh, so um, I think that, you know, yeah, to sum it up, that would be it. You know, work on yourself inside and out. Well, you know, Eddie, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. You know, you're someone I've wanted to talk to. You know, because like I said, I, for me, it's more about bringing voices that I think they're important that people haven't heard that uh, can give them a perspective from a different kind of angle or a, an educated perspective, but a voice they haven't heard before. Yeah. And, uh, you're one of I those people. It. I definitely wanted to do that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we'd even talk about like, how I started promoting fights too. Remember with Invincible Fighting Championship, and I had that sponsorship with Bodog, and then uh, I started producing the first ever female fights in Southern California, in California with Fatal Femmes, and that was great too. So maybe next time we'll talk about uh, you know bringing trying to find 16 female fighters back then when it wasn't popular before Ronda Rousey. Right from around the world, get them medically cleared and getting them to fight in California. You want to talk about probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. That is it. We'll have to talk about that one time. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to do that. Talk to you yeah. again. But uh, as far as this one, I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. And uh, I'd, I'd love to get you on again to do another one. Yeah, I no, just, I don't want to take fine. up all your time. I could sit here and talk to you for hours, but you know, I know, I know, but I don't think people will probably, they're probably like, Oh, Eddie Mills, do I want to listen to a podcast for two hours? You know? Right. <laughs> Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, if you have any more questions, I, you know, I'm, I'm open. Um, again, I'm, you know, I, I appreciate you, uh, uh, asking me to be on your show. It's a great honor. And, um, you know, I'd like to say hello to all the people that I've been able to uh, work with or train under and, and in some way maybe help, 
or that have helped me and, and uh, uh, sending out lots of uh, love to those people. And um, yeah. So until next time, I guess, right? Yes, sir. It was great. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. All right so maybe, maybe uh, I know we're recording, but maybe you and I will talk in the next couple of days and we talk a little bit more stocks. Sure thing. Okay. All right. Take All right. care. All right, brother. Thank you. All right. So if you want to follow Eddie on Instagram, it's Rebel Eddie E D D Y. Uh, Rebel Eddie. And uh, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at the underscore Todd underscore Atkins underscore show. I do a lot of my live shows there. And uh, please subscribe to my YouTube and TikTok, which are Todd Atkins show, both of them. And uh, please subscribe to this podcast if you like listening to it and uh, share it with some people. Um, as always, I appreciate the support and uh, stay tuned for more episodes.